now am I on? They say keep talking, I'm now on, hooray! Everything's working. So good morning everyone, it's fantastic to be here. Um, before we start, I know some of you will have heard me talk before, so you'll know this, but just in case anyone doesn't, it's always best to get any misconceptions out of the way. I am not the Kate Middleton who is going out with Prince William. <laughs> so um, apologies if you were expecting somebody different. What I am is, as introduced, I'm a psychologist. I'm currently working in a church. And I will explain a little bit about that as we go through. But really, what I want to talk to you this morning to sort of introduce the day is partly my story as well of why I am working in the place that I am instead of somewhere where you might more traditionally expect to find me. So picture my poor parents and the journey they've been on when uh, my brother, who is older than me, he's a solicitor, nice proper job, that's good. And their daughter, the last child, uh, was going into medicine. I started out at Nottingham University studying medicine, so phew, they can breathe a sigh of relief. When I left medicine, they were probably a little bit uh, surprised, maybe a little bit anxious. But that was fine because I then went on to train as a psychologist, so that's another good profession. My family aren't Christian, so the news that I was uh, leaving psychology to go and work for the church was an interesting one for them. And um, I, I know when I was 18 that they hoped it was a phase that I was growing out of. So I'm not really sure what they think now, but it's probably a little bit confusing. And they might sympathise with uh, the position I found myself in the other day when I turned on the radio uh, after getting home from work, just in time to hear them introducing the next programme. Uh, and the sort of subtitle for this programme was, Should Kate Middleton Get a Proper Job? <laughs> so um, my parents probably would like to answer that themselves. <laughs> But this morning where I want to start really is just answering this question of why are we talking about emotions and emotional problems at all? And why does this have anything to do with the church? And why do, have I found myself working in this place? And really I want to address what I think is the most basic misconception um, about emotions. And what I think the most basic misconception is, is basically that it is possible to avoid them. And perhaps even more than that, that it's possible and that it's beneficial to avoid them, that it's something we should be striving for. And um, here's, here's a chap some of you might recognize. Any Star Trek fans amongst the Yeah? I apologize, therefore, that it's the new Spock, but he just takes a better picture. It happens to us all as we get older. We get replaced with pictures of ourselves when we were younger. So Spock is a very interesting character because here's a guy who uh, had a Vulcan parent and a human parent, as far as I understand it, and therefore didn't experience emotions in the same way as his human colleagues and was supposedly superior, therefore, in intellect. And you get all these scenes where the humans are running around like nutters going crazy and they're, thank goodness we've got Spock because he's the calm one who's thinking things through and coming up with the solution. And what I want to ask you this morning is a question saying, um, is this actually the experience that we have? In real life, does this work? What happens to us in real life if we do not have an experience of emotions, if, if we could attain this apparent ideal that says that we can exist without emotions? And um, this is a quote from a chap called Antonio Damasio. He's a clinician who has done a huge amount of work in the field of emotions and um, understanding what they are. And he actually works with people who've had 
various, they've had brain injuries, they've had accidents, they've had trauma or whatever, and things that have left them unable to experience emotions in a normal way. So in a way, he is working with real-life Spocks. And this is what he says about one of his patients. He says, I never saw a tinge of emotion in my many hours of conversation with him. No sadness, no impatience, no frustration, nothing. So this, surely, this guy is the real-life Spock. Presumably, he's, I don't know, running the world or something, because he must be amazing. But actually, the story that um, Antonio Damasio tells is of people who are devastated by their loss of emotions, who cannot function normally at all, who have incredible struggles with the most basic everyday decisions, with relationships, with normal everyday life. Here's a quote from somebody else. This is a chap called Steve Grand. He uh, comes from the field of AI, artificial intelligence. And um, that field as well has had an interesting journey with emotions because when, they, when if people in that field were trying to model the, the human brain with computers, it's something that, that, that there's a lot of work going into. At first, obviously, they left out emotions because why would you put them in? They are obviously something you would think that, in, that humans would be better off without. But actually, their journey is discovering that without an algorithm that does basically what emotions do, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And, uh, and he says this. He says, of course, Star Trek has demonstrated that Mr. Spock is not always as bright as he looks. It's Captain Kirk who always comes out on top because he's got emotions and common sense and all the other things that Spock doesn't have. And that's very much what we see in medicine and the areas looking at this. And yet, we still, don't we, we still admire, we still get the feeling that people without emotions are in some way superior. Here's a quote from Maureen Down, a New York Times columnist from 2009, talking about now President Obama. She says he has a bit of Mr. Spock in him, and not just the funny ears. She says he has a Vulcan-like logic and detachment. And that's what we're looking for, isn't it, in our world leaders, in people we rely on. My favorite news story of the day as I was driving here is the one about Bill Clinton, who it turns out for several weeks, possibly months, while he was president, had lost the codes for, to, for the nuclear weapons. He just misplaced them somewhere, which is, which is just a wonderful story. Apparently, I heard on the news this morning that he used to keep them on a piece of laminated card uh, secured to the back of his credit cards with a rubber band, <laughs> which is just fabulous. This is not what we want. We don't want normal human people running the world. We want people who are in some ways different, and we believe that not having emotions would probably be a good thing, having a cool head. What about in the church? We've already heard a couple of things about the way that the church deals with emotion. And it's an interesting question. I work in a church where we strive very hard to deal with emotions well and to you know, support people and do lots of stuff with uh, promoting positive emotional health and stuff. But even in our church, I have spoken to a lot of people who have had some tricky experiences with the way that the church treats emotions. This is a quote from Joyce Mayer on one of the many blogs that she writes. She says, we should seek God to learn how to manage our emotions and not allow them to manage us. And she says, part of the devil's plan is for you to follow your emotions. Amen. Now, a lot of what she writes in that blog makes really good sense, and it's excellent. But it's interesting, some of what she's talking on there tinges and hints into some of the attitudes that some people have found in churches where any emotion, particularly emotional problems, is a, is a frighteningly difficult area. And maybe you've come across this in, in your church. That th this is one of two experiences that I've had people talking to me about that they found in the church. This is the sort of always happy, 
uh, sort of a expression that you have to have in church. And this is a quote from Bradley White, who is a sociologist and a church leader in America. And he says, for the churchgoer, the modal expression should be polite interest. So those of you who are you know, showing the wrong expression now, just bear that in mind. The face should show either a neutral expression or even better, a smile. It's okay to sometimes laugh or look troubled when prompted to by the person leading the service. <laughs> and, um, oh, hang on. And I love this. It carries on. He says, for the pastor, any church leaders in the room, he says the rules of emotion are even more strict. Pastors are limited to showing friendliness and interest, sort of like a stewardess. <laughs> Although at appropriate times can show emotions such as distress, enthusiasm, maybe light forms of anger. <laughs> Maybe you've uh, experienced um, this, this sort of feeling. Maybe there are some people in your church who've experienced this. And this is the sense of feeling that, on top of just having to display a sort of generally happy outlook, there is actually a sort of unwritten rule that says something about covering up more difficult emotions. And very often that's not written down anywhere official. Uh, I would say, as a church that strives very, very hard to overcome this, it's just something that seems to almost be inbuilt into, in, into what people expect when they come. This is a quote from a lady who I've done a lot of work with in our church, who said I could share this with you. She said, I, I find it really hard to show how I feel in church. Sometimes I just feel I should have my happy mask on. It's usually only when I get home and I'm back on my own that all the emotion comes out, and then all that pain is made even worse by the fact that I am, once again, alone. And so that's what today is about. That's what Mind and Soul is about. It's about how do we as churches deal with this tricky issue of emotion? How can we positively support people who are going through some difficult stuff? And more than that, what is the place of emotions? This is a, 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 a picture from an electron micrograph of something called a Purkinje cell. It's one of the neurons in the brain. It's very pretty. I like this picture. And your brain is made up of thousands of millions of neurons. It's incredibly complex. In fact, there's 50 to 100 billion of cells like this, not exactly like this, but of different sort of neurons in your brain. Each of those connects with each other. So there's about 100 trillion synaptic connections. Synapses are the connections between two neurons. Trillions of them in your brain. Your brain is about 3% of your body weight. Uh, so those of you who'd like to explain away any weight issues with the size of your brain, <laughs> sorry. You can only get about 3% with that. But it uses up to about 20% of the energy. So if you are studying for exams or something and want to justify your, your nibbling, then absolutely go with that. <laughs> your brain is constantly learning. It's constantly developing and changing. And this, another amazing picture of the human brain, this from an MRI scan, you know, this is the most amazing structure. When I was a medic learning about how all of the body works, you know, understanding the brain and the complexity of what's going on there, I just didn't understand how anybody sitting in those classes could not be a Christian. How could you believe all this stuff came together by chance? It's amazing. And you know, we have this great verse in the Psalms that says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. And I would just say to you this morning, how can we say that God has created everything so amazingly and then treat something as crucial as emotions as though they were some kind of afterthought or, or just mistake, coincidence, something that's spun up by chance? We have to view the brain and our emotions as something that's there deliberately because that's the way God designed it. And the minute we start to view emotions like that, we have to start to change the way we think about them and try and understand how are they supposed to work. Because that should be our standpoint for how we try and support people who are struggling with their emotions. 
So I want to ask you this morning the question, what is an emotion? And the best place to start, really, is with your experience, because we have hundreds of, of individuals here, and you've all had experiences of emotion. So if you think back to yourselves of the last time that you experienced a powerful, a strong emotion, when you were sure that you could say, yes, I definitely felt anxious then, yes, I definitely felt angry then, think about what was it about the way you were feeling in that moment that makes you so sure that it's an emotion? Because those feelings, that experience, can give us some clues to what the function of emotions actually is. And here's one of the things you might experience. This is, uh, obviously, butterflies in your stomach. So some of you who might have felt anxious might have experienced this one. And physical sensation is a very powerful part of emotions. Uh, some emotions more than others particularly express them in this way, but almost all emotions have some kind of physical change. And emotions, really, the main job of them is to grab your attention. That physical change is something you notice, particularly in the case of negative emotions. It's usually something that isn't necessarily that pleasant. So their, their job is to make you realize that something is going on. And here's a quote from William James. He's a, a philosopher writing in the 19th century. Um, and he saw this as such an important part of emotions that he actually says in this quote that, in effect, that is the emotion, the physical change. That's what it's all about. He says, the bodily changes follow directly the perception of the exciting fact, and our feeling of those changes as they occur is the emotion. So he felt that it was really, really crucial. Here's something else you might have thought about with your experience, the sort of feeling, that the, the desire to do something. And emotions carry with them a desire to act or react in a particular way. They make us more likely to do something. You know, um, if my, I have a five-year-old, and if she's being really annoying, the more annoying she is, the more likely it is that I'm going to shout. And the longer that goes on, the more likely it becomes. Because emotions set us up to respond in a certain way. They make us want to do something. And here's another quote uh, from Antonio Damasio, who we've already uh, come across. And he says that the human body has at its disposal two methods by which it can change its circumstances. It can do so by directly altering behavior, so reflexes, things like shivering, or it can resolve the predicament by inducing physiological states, so changing the way that you feel physically, that lead individuals to behave in a certain way. So if your body needs you to drink, it will induce you to feel thirsty. If your body might need you to run away or, hit, or fight back or something like that, it changes your physical state so that you're more likely to react in that way. Here's something else that's part of an emotional experience. Thoughts and emotions genuinely make us think. So if you think about the chain of, that we've, we're developing here, emotions start out as something to grab your attention. They then get you physically ready to, in case you have to respond. And then they also trigger you to think, to analyze what is going on here. Do I need to respond? Is this important or isn't it? And uh, Jonathan Haidt is a, is a social psychologist. Again, the field of emotion is one with so many different people, different domains working into it. And this, he says that it is only because our emotional brains work so well that our reasoning works at all. So that's an interesting thought when, in fact, we very often feel that emotions interfere with our reasoning and make logic um, something that's harder to attain. Emotions obviously have other functions as well. This is a slide with just some of the classic facial expressions. And one of the most remarkable things about emotions is that wherever I go in the world, even if I go to a tribe who's had no contact at all with Western people, with, cult with Western culture, 
If I show them pictures of certain facial expressions of emotion, they all recognize them, and they all signify the same emotion. So there is something very basic about emotions that is about communicating. It's about connecting with other people. If I am obviously crying or upset here, I don't need to say anything to any of you, but you know something of what's likely to be going on for me. You immediately empathize with something of what I'm feeling. We have connected. Even though we haven't spoken, you don't know who I am. So emotions are a very powerful thing about what makes us human, what makes us connect. This, for anyone who's wondering, is a fork in the road. <laughs> One of my colleagues says you can tell a lot about people from whether they find that funny or not. So I don't know what it says about you or me. But. So, and emotions are very, very powerful in decision-making. And it is true that if you have strong emotions associated with a decision, it can make it more difficult because emotions do influence our decision-making. But let's think about what emotions are there for. How do they work? And this is, this is my model, and it's, it's a sort of in a nutshell model. So apologies to anybody who comes from a specific expertise because I am sort of summarizing lots of things in here. But basically, you can think of emotions as a little bit like striking a match. And an emotion is triggered when your brain detects that something significant is going on in the world around you. Now, maybe that's a big thing, like uh, you've just stepped out into the road and a bus is coming towards you. Maybe it's something more, more minor. You're in the car, you're trying to get to a conference, and you're in a traffic jam, and you don't want to be late. We all carry around with us in our head a whole list of goals and things that we're trying to achieve, things that are important to us. And emotions are triggered when something, your brain detects something going on in the world around you that might clash with one of those goals, in a good way or a bad way. It might influence the chances of that goal happening. So when that happens, your brain triggers an emotion. The physical changes, as we've talked about, their main job is to grab your attention. And then you have analytical thoughts, so you can then make a decision. So a great example of this, a friend of mine the other day was filling her car up with petrol. She had a couple of kids in the back who were all screaming. It was one of those days. And she's in the middle of putting the petrol into the car, and she said to me, she said, it's really weird because suddenly I just felt my stomach go really like butterfly and really weird, and I just felt really odd. And she said, I thought to myself, why am I feeling that? And then I looked down, and she realized that she was putting unleaded petrol into her new car, which is diesel. Whoops, yes. And this is the joy of having a friend like me, is when you, tell, you share those stories of your stressful day, I say things like, what a great example. <laughs> Which I'm sure she was really joy, you know, really helped her day. Because it was a great example. What happened then is she was distracted from what was going on. She hadn't noticed her mistake. But her brain got her attention by changing her physical state. She then was very aware of the process of thinking, why? And then analyzing with the rest of her brain what was going on. And she then discovered that she needed to take action pretty quickly. So if her brain had not been able to alert her, she would not have, have been able to do something about it. The way emotions are designed to work is that once that process has gone through, just like the match, it dies out. It's, it's, it's you know, had its course, it's done what it needs to do, the emotion dies out. So in a way, you can think of emotions as a bit like a smoke alarm. Their job is to warn you that something significant might be happening, like a light on the dashboard of your car. It is the part of your brain that scans the world around you. It is the, that, it's the tool that that part of your brain uses to send a message to the sort of higher level department that does the analyzing and say, check this out. So I ask you the question, therefore, this morning, are emotions sinful? And I would say to you, no. I believe very strongly that they are not. One good piece of evidence is that Jesus experienced a whole range of emotions. 
And Jesus is the most, for a psychologist, the most exciting example of all because here is God in the body and brain that he designed. So if we look at the way that Jesus dealt with things like emotions, we have somebody who really knew how to get the best out of his brain, out of the way that it responded to the world around him. And he experienced a whole range of emotions, some of which you can see here. So no, emotions, I would say, are not sinful, but they do lead to actions, and they are powerful, um, powerful motivations for our actions. So some of the Bible verses often quoted in this whole area of emotion, here's, here's a common one from Matthew 5, saying, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now, if you look at that in a slightly different version from the RSV version, it says, Any, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And I absolutely stand by that. Emotions are not an excuse. They are not a get-out clause. So my, the, my daughter, when she got into trouble at school for doing something, one of the things that as a parent you just wish your kids would never do, and I said to her, what were you thinking? She said, oh, sorry, Mummy, I was a bit cross. Not a good enough excuse for me, and not a good enough excuse for God either. You are liable to judgment, if you, even if you are acting as a result of your emotions. So Ephesians tell us, be angry, but do not sin. Be careful about what you do as a result of your emotions. Genesis 4, when the whole Cain and Abel situation was coming out, God says, sin is crouching at your door. Because when we are dealing with a situation that is triggering strong emotions, we are literally on the edge. There are normally a couple of options open to us, and there is a risk that sometimes we take the wrong one. So I believe that as the church, it's very important for us to ask the question of when are we most at risk of being led into sin by our emotions? Because we as the church need to be very careful that amongst the other things we're doing, we are not setting up a, a condition, a culture, which leads people likely to be more at risk of their emotions. And as I said, when we opened out, there is a risk of that within the church. There is this sort of um, inbuilt tendency for people to feel they have to hide their emotions or, or do, do some strange things with them. So I want to take you through just a few of the, of the classic ways that emotions are uh, perhaps at risk of doing that. And the first one is, uh, was originally from a phrase coined by this chap. This is a guy called Daniel Goleman, wrote a book in 1995, I think it was, called Emotional Intelligence. I don't know if anyone's read it. It was kind of, it was the in thing at the time. And he coined this phrase of emotional hijack which describes very well something, one of the ways that our emotions can sometimes cause us problems. And to explain that, I'll just come back to the, the model that I was talking about before of how emotions work. Because as I've said, your brain triggers an emotion when something significant is happening. Physical change, so you're aware at the same time, uh, sort of analytical process going on to find out why it happened. But all of that is no good at all if the thing that has just happened is that you have just walked out into the road and a bus is coming. So you're stood in the middle of the road, of the road listening to a beep, analysing where it's coming from, and meanwhile, too late, you're dead. So... The brain has to have a way of overriding that, of making sure that you react really quickly, and it does. And in moments of it, when the emotion that is triggered is extreme enough, or the situation is critical enough, your brain has a sort of bypass route. And what that means is that the message that goes to the part of your brain triggering the physical change is much, much quicker. And so your physical change happens, and in fact your response has happened long before you've had a chance to do the analysis. And then, given some time, the, the thinking part of your brain catches up with you and 
checks out what you've done just to see if it was right, which is nice. So this is what's happening when you walk into your kitchen. And if anybody doesn't like spiders here, gosh, it seems to have been a year for big spiders this year. But um, you see something on the floor that looks like a spider. So before you know it, you've screamed, run to the door, called your husband significant other, whoever it is, to come and deal with it. And that's when you realise that, in fact, it is the top of a tomato. <laughs> it's also what was happening the day that I was out driving with my mother, who is scared of wasps, and I became aware that there was a wasp in the car. It was fine, it was right at the back, nothing to concern her, but I didn't want her to panic. So very calmly, I just said to her, Mum, just so you know, there is a wasp in the car. And she got out. On a roundabout. <laughs> Just like that. Which was by far the more dangerous thing to do. The wasp wasn't bothering anyone. And when I got her back in the car, and we called around the corner, she did say, yes, that probably wasn't the best thing to do. <laughs> so sometimes emotional hijack can grab us, and we react in ways that perhaps if we had thought before we acted, we perhaps wouldn't have done. And we need to be aware of this. It's an important function our brain has, but sometimes it can lead us into trouble. So genuinely, I do a lot of work, and our church does a lot of work with young people, and I have lost count of the number of teenagers who have been excluded or suspended or whatever for doing whatever they've done, you know, hitting, shouting, swearing, whatever it is that they've done and, I, and I've said to them or I've heard someone else say to them what were you thinking and the answer is they probably weren't teenagers in particular are prone to experiencing emotions that are very powerful that, that, that come on them they don't notice them coming and so therefore they are more prone to emotional hijack than others so are some people if you've had unfortunate difficult stuff in your past you might find yourself dealing with emotions that come can come out of the blue and are very powerful you might find yourself at risk of emotional hijack Phobias are one obvious example of this, as is something like post-traumatic stress and the emotional reactions hooked up in that. Here's another way that emotions can cause us problems. So uh, we, we've already learned that emotions can be problematic if they are very strong. And here is one, another classic way that emotions can be strong. And again, let's go back to the model of how emotions work. And of course, the job of emotion is to trigger some nice, helpful, analytical thoughts, which allow you to make a sensible, rational decision about what you're going to do. But how often do emotions actually act like that? You've got 101 things going on in your brain, you're stressed out as it is, and then something happens and you have to deal with it. And what unfortunately happens very often is that as well as the analytical thoughts that are triggered, some other thoughts are triggered which aren't as helpful. And they are the thoughts that say things like, I don't think I can cope with this, it's just one thing too many, I'm always bad at this, I always mess this stuff up, I always knew this would happen, this is definitely going to go wrong. We've all had those thoughts, haven't we? And what happens if you have those thoughts going on is that instead of resolving the emotion, they trigger another emotion, which triggers some more thoughts, which triggers more emotion. And if you are prone to thinking in these sorts of ways, again, perhaps because of some stuff from your past, perhaps because of some things to do with your personality. You know, some of us are more prone to thinking in these ways because of things to do with our personality. It's a bit like having a brain that's full of something like this, lots of balled up bits of paper and dry leaves and sticks and stuff, kindling in effect. And I call them kindling thoughts because what happens is that when the match of an emotion is struck, instead of just being localised and burning its course like it's supposed to, what it triggers is a great big emotional bonfire. And the problem with these is they are very powerful, they are very overwhelming, and also they don't, sometimes they don't entirely go away, they can smolder on in the background. And some people will say to you, uh, and I've heard a lot of people say these to me, like, I always feel anxious, and I just don't know why, it's always there, or I always just feel sad, and I don't know why. And these sorts of emotions can become really problematic for people. 
The, the last thing I want to talk about with emotions uh, is to do with this. We have to remember that the main job of emotions is to grab our attention. And so in a way, they are a bit like the adorable small toddler. I don't know if anybody has any adorable small toddlers. Mine is five, so she's a little bit out of that faith. Now, if your toddler is trying to get your attention and you try and ignore them, remind me, do, do they go away? <laughs> they turn into something like this. <laughs> because their job at that age is to get your attention. They are hardwired to do it, and they're very, very good at doing it. And emotions are much the same. Their job is to grab your attention. So if you don't know how to deal with them, or they are painful or difficult or awkward, what we have to do is suppress them, push them down. And for any adult, the ability to do that to some degree is a, a part of being healthy and emotionally mature. It would be no good, particularly for those of us in jobs that require us to be in positions of leadership or calm, if every time something went wrong, we were running around like a mad thing, screaming and panicking. However, if you do this habitually, if it is the only thing that you know what to do with your emotions, you end up with something like this, and this is a, a bubbling pit. And emotions that are suppressed don't go away, unfortunately. And what you end up with is this bubbling pit of nasty negative emotions, which is no longer connected to what triggered it, so it's quite difficult to work through it, difficult to get rid of it. It bubbles to the surface at the times when you could most do with it not doing. So when you're tired, vulnerable, on your own, that's when those emotions hit you. And it's linked with all kinds of problems, the sorts of things that people do as a desperate attempt to cope with their emotions. Alcohol, drugs, self-harm, even things like eating disorders, which are more sort of long-term attempts to cope with how you're feeling. So these sorts of emotions are very problematic. And this is a cat in a box, obviously. <laughs> just in case anyone can tell that. I have two cats, um, and one of the most interesting and entertaining experiences in our household is when the cats have to go to the vet for their annual injections, and if I'm feeling particularly cruel, I leave my husband to do it, just, just because it's fun. But <laughs> trying to get two cats into one small basket is always interesting, and I think that suppressing emotions is a bit like trying to get an angry cat into a box or into a basket. And anybody who's ever tried to do that will know what I mean, and if not, then you'll have to use your imagination but number one, it's hard. They fight back. And number two, even if you do succeed, the cat is still there. It's not gone. Maybe somebody else came into the room and they wouldn't know it was there, but you do. You'll, every once in a while you'll hear a noise. Maybe a paw comes out because it's trying to get out of the box. Most of all, though, I don't want to be around when you open that box and let the cat out <laughs> because it's got more cross while it's been in there. And that's what happens to people who are struggling with these kinds of emotions, is that they have got stuff in boxes which is incredibly difficult and painful, and they don't know when or how to let it out. And I believe that part, strongly that part of our role in the church is to give them some safe opportunities and help them to learn how to deal with that stuff. Because ultimately, life is a bit like this picture. I often say it's a bit like trying to get a boat across an ocean. And you know, some days your, your ocean looks like that. Oh, they're nice days. We love those days. But on other days, it looks more like this. And you, sometimes we all sail into a storm. And um, we've already heard, you know, it would be, we often want to treat mental health and emotional health issues as though it was that some people are healthy. And then over here, there is the poor, unlucky people who unfortunately are not healthy and struggle with it. The truth is, these things could happen to any of us. And they frequently do. And as I could carry on working, more and more people who I know uh, go through these sorts of experiences. And we're able to help them and support them and help them to understand that this does not mean they're crazy. This is just a normal part of life. Sometimes you sail into storms, and that's tricky. And you know, one in four people will suffer with some kind of serious mental health problem this year. 
So look around this room. That's a quarter of the people in this room statistically. It's a lot of people. This is normal stuff. It is very common. And when I think of the sorts of issues that have brought people to see me just in the last week, you know, issues with stress, issues with life experiences like bereavement, um, issues around fertility and infertility, children who cause a lot of emotional reactions one way or another, you know, tricky, tricky stuff that people go through, stuff with finances, jobs at the moment. There's so much uncertainty and, and stress and pressure. And, you know, this, this, here's another image that comes to my mind when I'm thinking about life. And uh, to me, life is a bit like being on a swing. And uh, when I was at school, in primary school, we had the most amazing swing. You wouldn't be allowed it anymore because it was health and safety gone mad. But it had sort of posts that were 12 feet high. It had the longest chains ever. And there is no feeling like swinging on that swing, a full swing. The sense of soaring, the sense of, of doing something amazing. And to me, that's what life is like. And um, Jesus, of course, said that he came so people could have life and have it to the full. And I love the message translation of that verse, which says, I came so that they could have more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And to me, Jesus came so that we could soar on that swing that is life. But emotional and mental health problems are a bit like when some kids have come down to your park overnight and they've wound the swing round the bar, so your chains have been shortened. You can swing, you can still live, but it's not the same. It's not more and better than you ever dreamed of. It's not the full potential. It's not everything that God had in store for you. And I'm thinking not just of the people who have serious emotional problems here. I'm thinking of the people who perhaps just go through their whole lives not quite experiencing it the way that they could do because perhaps they're just slightly limited by some stuff from their past, some stuff around how they feel about themselves, some stuff around stress or anxiety, stuff like that. And my dream is for people to be able to experience what Jesus came to bring life in all of its fullness. And I believe very strongly that as the church, if we can understand our emotions better and help other people to deal with them, that's precisely what we can give them. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't know if Jonathan's coming back just to sort out the, um, the computers and stuff, but I think we've got some time for some questions, have we, Jonathan? Yes, we have. Yep. Right. I don't know. Have we, got, have we got a mic or anything that we can run around with for the questions? Yep. There is a man with a microphone coming your way. Does anyone have two seats next to us? There's quite a few seats at the front here if somebody's looking. We've got some on both front rows. And then there's a couple dotted around. Okay. Do we have some questions then? If, if, if you want to just take the mic to somebody who's got a question to ask, that would be great. There's a question that we could do with another hour to answer. Um, I think, uh, for me, there is something very key in another great expression that Jesus used, which was when he say, said that, um, that he came, that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You know that, another very well-known phrase. And I love the way the message quotes that verse, because the way the message quotes it is to say, then you will experience for yourself the truth, 
and the truth will free you. And I think life in all its fullness is what we can experience when we have had a personal experience of who we are in Jesus, what that means for us, um, and the changes that that can make for us on an individual level. And that's very different to just knowing the truth and being able to recite it. It's about having had a personal experience of that. Do you have another question? Hello. Um, if you haven't got the resources of your church and the sense of expertise um, to support people, are there resources that are uh, sort of freely available for, uh, that we can use? Obviously, you're experienced and qualified, but there's lots of churches who don't have the resources. One of the things that, that Mind and Soul is all about, sorry, I don't know, where, can you wave at me? I don't know where you're speaking from. Ah, over there, just so I'm looking in vaguely. One of the things that Mind and Soul is about is trying to resource the local church and being a sort of hub that you can come to. And if you have an issue in your church that there are other people who we're in contact with and we can help you to find the right place to deal with that. Some of those organisations you'll find here, so dealing with specific issues. Um, some of that stuff you can come and chat to the people who are on the stands downstairs as well. So, yeah, if you come to us, hopefully you'll be able to get some signposting and some help to find the support that you need. We've got time for more, Jonathan? Yeah. yeah. Um, what, would you, what would you define um, the difference between a mental health problem and just normal scrolling options? Okay, there, that's an interesting question. And in some ways, the answer is defined for us by our medics. Who, um, because there are official diagnostic criteria. So if I was working as a clinician, um, I can't diagnose someone with a problem unless they fit quite precise criteria. So it, the medical answer to your question is that there are strictly set out uh, sort of... Uh, criteria for me to follow. Of course, in practice, what happens very often, and I find as someone working in the local church, is I am working with a lot of people who perhaps don't have diagnoses or who are struggling to get diagnoses and help, but are obviously dealing with emotional issues that, that they would be better off without. So I hesitate to try and classify people. And in a way, I have the luxury of being able to do that because I'm not working as a clinician. It's one of the things I love about working in the church that mean that I can work with people who are perhaps at a sort of subclinical level. They are not yet ill enough to be clinically diagnosed, but there is obviously something going on for them. And ultimately, that's what we'd all love to be able to do because early intervention is the key for a lot of emotional health problems. So I do an awful lot of work now these days, uh, in particular with issues around stress and anxiety. And the sooner someone comes to see me and says, look, I'm having some trouble, the easier it is for me to help them to get out of that and the less the impact on their life. So um, sometimes it can be helpful to give some people some support before they've been clinically diagnosed with something. Just one more question apparently. Yeah. What, what are the risks associated with helping people with emotional issues? Oh, yeah, no, that's a good question. That, that's a very interesting one. It's something as a church that we discuss myself and my senior leadership team we discuss all the time because it is a, it's a risky area to be working in it's a tough area to be working with um, I think any area that has the potential to, to have great impact is always also going to have the potential to have risk associated with it there are many difficult human things going on in terms of the relationships you have with local teams with other mental health professionals 
I'm thinking from the perspective of someone working for the church. I would also want to say from our experience that there is a spiritual risk involved. You know, um, when you are going into someone's life and helping them to find freedom and achieve change, that is a huge spiritual issue. And we have learned how vital it is to have people praying intensely for us, our team, and for the people who we're supporting. Um, and so I think the two things very often interact, that there are the practical human risks, but also we must never forget the spiritual side of things, that different perspective. I know that's a very short answer. But... Okay, thank you, Kate. Come on, let's give a round of applause.